Chapter Three of the Colors of Space. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ana Sofia Simão de Portugal. The Colors of Space by Marion Zimmer Bradley. Chapter Three. At the top of the ramp, Alaric glanced briefly at his papers, motioned him through. Bart passed through the airlock and into a brightly lit corridor half full of passengers. The line was moving slowly, and for the first time Bart had a chance to think. He had never seen violent death before. In this civilized world you didn't. He knew, if he thought about Briscoe, he'd start bawling like a baby. So he swallowed hard a couple of times, set his chin, and concentrated on the trip to Procyon Alpha. That meant his ship was outbound on the Aldebaran run. Proxima Centauri, Sirius, Pollux, Procyon, Capella, and Aldebaran. The line of passengers was disappearing through the doorway. A woman of head of Bard turned and said nervously, We won't be put in cold sleep right away, will we? He reassured her, remembering his unbound trip five years ago. No, no, the ship won't go into warp drive until we're well past Pluto. It'll be several days at least. Beyond the doorway, the lights dwindled, and the Mentorian interpreter took his dark glasses, saying, Kindly remove your belt, shoes, and other accessories of leather or metal before stepping into the decontamination chamber. They will be separately decontaminated and returned to you. Papers, please. With a small twinge of fright, Bart surrendered them. Would Maturin ask why he was carrying two wallets? Inside the other one, he still had his Academy ID card, which identified him as Bart Steele, and if the Maturin looked through them to check and found out he was carrying two sets of identity papers... But Maturin merely dumped all his pocket paraphernalia without looking at it, into a sack. Just step through here. Holding up his trousers with both hands, Bart stepped inside the indicated cubicle. It was filled with faint bluish light. Bart felt a strong tingling and a faint electrical smell, and along his forearms there was a slight prickling where the small hairs were all standing on hand. He knew that the invisible R rays were killing all the microorganisms in his body so that no diseased germ or stray fungus would be carried from planet to planet. The bluish light died. Outside, the Manturian gave him back his shoes and belt, handed him the paper sack of his belongings and a paper cup full of greenish fluid. Drink this. What is it? The medic said patiently. Remember, the R-rays killed all the microorganisms in your body, including the good ones, the antibodies that protect you against disease, and small yeast and bacteria that live in your intestines and help with the digestion of your food. So we have to replace those you need to stay healthy. See? The green stuff tasted a little brackish, but Bart caught it down all right. He didn't much like the idea of drinking a solution of germs, 
but he knew that was silly. There was a big difference between disease germs and helpful bacteria. Another mentorian official, this one a young woman, gave him a key with a number tag and a small booklet with Welcome Aboard printed on the cover. The tag was numbered 246B, which made Bart raise his eyebrows. B-class was normally too expensive for Bart's father's modest purse. It wasn't quite a luxurious Class A, reserved for planetary governors and ambassadors, but it was plenty luxurious. Brisky had certainly sent him traveling in style. B-deck was a long corridor with oval doors. Bart found one numbered 246 and, not surprisingly, the key opened it. It was a pleasant little cabin, measuring at least six feet by eight, and he would evidently have it to himself. There was a comfortably big bunk, a light that could be turned on and off instead of the permanent glow walls of the cheaper class, a private shower in the toilet, and a placard on the walls informing him that passengers in the big class had the freedom of the observation dome and the recreation lounge. There was even a row of buttons dispensing synthetic food, in case a passenger preferred privacy or didn't want to wait for meals in the dining hall. A buzzer sounded, and the mentorian voice announced, Five minutes to room check. Passengers will please remove all metal in their clothing and deposit in the lead drawers. Passengers will please recline in their bunks and fasten the retaining stress before the steward arrives. Repeat. Passengers will please... Bart took off his belt, stuck it in his cufflinks in the drawer and lay down. Then, in a sudden panic, he got up again. His papers as Bart still were still in the sack. He got them out, and with a feeling as if he were crossing a bridge and burning it after him, tore up every scrap of paper that identified him as Bart Steele of Vega Four graduated Space Academy of Earth. Now, for better or worse, he was... Who was he? He hadn't even looked at the new papers Briscoe had given him. He glanced through them quickly. They were made out to David Warren Briscoe of Aldebaran Four. According to them, David Briscoe was twenty years old, hair black, eyes hazel, eight six foot one inch. Bart wondered painfully if Briscoe had a son and if David Briscoe knew where his father was. There was also a license, validated with four runs on the Aldebaran Intrasatellite Cargo Company, planetary ships, with the rank of apprentice astrogator and a considerable sum of money. Bart put the papers in his pants pocket and the turned-up scraps of his old one into the trash bin before he realized that they looked exactly like what they were, turned up legal identity papers and a broken plastic card. Nobody destroyed identity papers for any good reason. What could he do? Then he remembered something from the Academy. Starships were closed system cycles. No waste was discarded, but everything was collected in big chemical tanks, broken down to separate elements purified and built up again into new materials. He threw the paper into the toilet, worked plastic card back and forth, back and forth, until he had drenched it into inch-wide bits, 
and threw it after them. The cabin door opened, and the Manchurian said irritably, Please lie down and fasten your straps. I haven't all day. Hastily, Bart flushed Toland and went to the bunk. Now everything that could identify him as Bart Steele was on its way to the breakdown tanks. Before long, the complex hydrocarbons and cellulose would all be innocent little molecules of carbon, oxygen, hydrogen. They might turn up in new combinations as sugar on the table. The Mentorian grumbled. You young people think the rules mean everybody but you. And strapped him far too tightly into the bunk. Bart felt resentful. Just because Mentorians could work on Larry ships, did they have to act as if they owned everybody? When the man had gone, Bart drew a deep breath. Was he really doing the right thing? If he'd refused to get out of the robocab, if he'd driven Briscoe straight to the police, then maybe Briscoe would still be alive, and now it was too late. A warning siren went off in the ship, rising to hysterical intensity. Bart thought incredulously, this is really happening. It felt like a nightmare. His father, a fugitive from the lorry, Briscoe dead, he himself traveling with forged papers to a star he'd never seen. He braced himself, knowing Siren was the last warning before takeoff. First there would be the hum of great turbines deep in the ship, then the crushing surge of acceleration. He had made a dozen trips inside the solar system, but no matter how often he did it, there was the strange excitement, the little pinpoint of fear, like an exotic taste that was almost pleasant. The door opened and Bart grabbed a fistful of bad ticklings as two Larry came into the bedroom. One of them said, in their strange shrill speech, This boy is the right age. Bart froze. You're seeing spies in every corner, Ransom, said the other, then in Universal. Could we trouble you for your papers, sir? Bart, strapped down and helpless, moved his head toward the drawer, hoping his face did not betray his fear. He watched the two Larry riffle through his papers with their oil-pointed claws. What is your planet? Bart bit his lip, hard, yet almost said, Vega 4. Aldebaran 4. The Larry said in his own language, we should have Marjolin here. He actually saw them. The other replied, But I saw the machine that disintegrated. I still say there was enough protoplasm residue for two bodies. Bart fought to keep his face perfectly straight. Did anyone come into your cabin? Larry asked in Universal. Only one steward. Why, is something wrong? There is some thought that the stowaway might be on board. Of course, we could not allow that. Anyone not properly protected would die in the first shift into warp drive. Just Stuart, Bart said again, 
a Mentorian. Delari said, eyeing him keenly, You are ill? Or discommoded? Bart grasped a trendant for an excuse. That, that stuffed medic made me drink, made me feel sort of sick. You may send for a medical officer after acceleration, said Larry expressionlessly. The summoning bell is at your left. They turned and went out, and Bart gulped. Larry in person, checking the passengers' decks. Normally you never saw one on board. Just mentorians. Larry treated humans as if they were too dumb to bother about. Well, at least for once, someone was acting as if humans were worthy antagonists. We'll show them, someday. But he felt very alone and scared. A low hum rose, somewhere in the ship, and Bart crept ticking as he felt the slow urge. Then a violent sense of pressure popped his eardrums, weight crowded down on him like an elephant sitting on his chest, and there was a horrible squash sensation dragging his limbs out of shape. It grew and grew. Bart lay still and sweated, trying to ease his uncomfortable position, unable to move so much as a finger. The Larry ships hit twelve gravities in the first surge of acceleration. Bart felt as if he were spreading out, under the weight, into a puddle of flesh, melted flesh like briscoes. Bart writhed and bit his lip till he could taste blood, wishing he were young enough to bawl out loud. Abruptly it eased, and the blood started to flow again in his numbed limbs. Bart loosened his straps, took a few deep breaths, wiped his face, wringing wet, whether it sweat or tears he wasn't sure, and sat up in his bunk. The loudspeaker announced, Acceleration 1 is completed. Passengers on A and B decks are invited to witness the passing of the satellites from the observation lounge in half an hour. Bart got up and washed his face remembering that he had no luggage with him, not so much as a toothbrush. At the back of his mind, packed up in a corner, was continuing worry about his father, the horror of Briscoe's ghastly death, cheery of Larry. But he slammed the lid firmly on them all. For the moment he was safe. They might be looking for Bart Steele by now, but they weren't looking for David Briscoe of Aldebaran. He might just as well relax and enjoy the trip. He went down to the observation lounge. It had been darkened, and one whole wall of the room was made of clear quartzite. Bart drew a deep breath as the vast panorama of space opened out before him. They were receding from the sun at some thousand of miles a minute. Swirling past ship, Gleaming in the reflected sunlight like iron feeling moving to the motion of a magnet, were the waves up and waves of cosmic dust, tiny free electrons, ions, particles of gas. Free of the heavier atmosphere, themselves invisible, they formed in their billions into bright clouds around ship, pale, swirling veils of mist, and through their dim shine, the brilliant flares of the fixed stars burned clear and steady, 
so far away that even the hurling motion of the ship could not change their positions. One by one he picked out the constellations. Aldebaran swung on the pendant chain of Taurus like a giant ruby. Orion strode across the sky, a swirling nebula at his belt. Vega burned, cobalt bloom, in the art of the lyre. Colors, colors. Inside the atmosphere of Earth's night, the stars had been pale with sparks against black. Here, against misty pale swirls of cosmic dust, they burned with color heaps on color. The bloody burning crimson of Antares, the metallic gold of Capella, the sullen pulsing of Betelgeuse. They burned, each with its own inward flame and light, like handfuls of burning jewels flung by some giant hand upon the swirling darkness. It was a sight Bart felt he could watch forever and still be hungry to see. Never-changing, ever-changing colors of space. Behind him in the darkness, after a long time, someone says softly, Imagine being a Larry and not being able to see anything out there but bright or brighter light. A bell rang melodiously in the ship, and the passengers in the lounge began to stir and move toward the door, to stretch limbs cramped like barts by tranced watching, to talk quickly of ordinary things. I suppose that bell means dinner, said the vaguely familiar voice at Bart's elbow. Synthetics, I suppose, but at least we can all get acquainted. The lights from the undarkened hall fell on their faces as they moved toward the door. Bart! Why, it can't be! In utter dismay, Bart looked down into the face of Tommy Kendron. In the rush of danger, he had absolutely forgotten that Tommy Kendron was on this ship. To make his alias useless, Tommy was looking at him in surprise and delight. Why didn't you tell me, or did you and your father decide at last minute? Hey, it's great that we can go part away together at least. Bart knew he must cut this short very quickly. He stepped out into the full corridor light so that Tommy could see his black hair. I'm sorry, you're confusing me with someone else. Bart, come off it. Tommy's voice died out. Sorry, I'd have sworn you were a friend of mine. Bart wondered suddenly, had he done the wrong thing? He had a feeling he might need a friend, badly. Well, it was too late now. He stared Tommy in the eye and said, I've never seen you before in my life. Tommy looked deflated. He stepped back slightly, shaking his head. Never saw such a resemblance. Are you a vegan? No, Bart lied flatly. Aldebaran, David Briscoe. Glad to know you, Dave. With undiscoverable friendliness, Tommy stick out a hand. Say, that bell means dinner. Why don't you go down together? I don't know a soul on the ship, and it looks like luck, running to a fellow who could be my best friend's twin brother. Bart felt warmed and drawn, but sensibly he knew he could not keep up the pretense. Sooner or later, he'd give himself away, 
used some habitual phrase or gesture Tommy would recognize. Should he take a chance, reveal himself to Tommy and ask him to keep quiet? No, this wasn't the game. One man was already dead. He didn't want Tommy to be the next. There was only one way out, he said coldly. Thank you, but I have other things to attend to. I intend to be very busy all through the voyage. He spun on his heel and walked away before he could see Tommy's eager, friendly smile turn hurt and defensive. Back in his cabin, he gloomily dilated some syntactic jellies, thinking with annoyance of the anticipated good food of the dining room. He knew he couldn't risk meeting Tommy again, and rarely resigned himself to staying in his cabin. It looked like a awfully boring trip ahead. It was. It was a week before the lorry ship went into Ark Drive, and all that time Bart stayed in his cabin, not daring to go to the observation lounge or dining hall. He got tired of eating synthetics. Oh, they were nourishing enough, but they were altogether uninteresting. And tired of listening to the tapes the room steward got him from the ship's library. By the time they had been in space a week, he was so bored with his own company that even the Venturian medic was a welcome sight when he came in to prepare him for cold sleep. Bart had had the best education on earth, but he didn't know precisely how the Larry Warp tribe worked. He'd been told that only a few of the Larry understood it, just as the men who flew a copter did need to understand Newton's three laws of motion in order to get himself back and forth to work. But he knew this much. When ship generated the frequencies, which accelerated it beyond speed of light, in effect the ship went into a sort of fourth dimension and came out of it a good many light years away. As far as Bart knew, no human being had ever survived warp drive except in the suspended animation, which they called cold sleep. While the medic was professionally reassuring him and strapping him in his bunk, Bart wondered what humans would do with Larry's star drive if they had it. Well, he supposed they could use automation in their ships. The Mentorian paused, needle in hand. Do you wish to be awakened for the week we shall spend in each of the Proxima, Sirius and Pollock systems, sir? You can, of course, be given enough drug to keep you in cold sleep until we reach the Procyon system. Bart wondered if the room steward had mentioned the passenger so bored with the trip that he didn't even visit the observation lounge. He felt tempted. He was getting awfully tired of staring at walls. On the other hand, he wanted very much to see the other star systems. When he passed through them on the trip to Earth, he'd been too young to pay much attention. Firmly he put temptation aside. Better not to risk meeting other passengers, Tommy especially, if he decided he couldn't take the boredom. The needle went into his arm. He felt himself sinking into sleep, and in sudden panic, realized that he was helpless. The ship had touched down on three worlds, and on any of them the lorry might have his description or his alias. He could be taken off, drugged and unconscious, and might never wake up. He tried to move, to protest, to tell them he was changing his mind, 
but already he was unable to speak. There was a freezing moment of intense, painful cold. Then he was floating in what felt like waves of cosmic dust, swirling many-colored before his eyes. And then there was nothing, no color, nothing at all except nowhere night of sleep. End of chapter 3